Hey, Dental Online Trainers, Dr. Dennis Hartlieb here with you, and welcome back to part two of our conversation with Dr. Dennis Wells. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and listen, because you can hear the background of one of the leaders of No Prep or Prepless Porcelain Veneers. Dennis truly has a unique background, but one I think many of us, many people can relate to in various ways in their own life. Now, in the second part of the interview, Dennis and I talk about what led him into sort of no prep or minimal prep veneers, what he's learned, and some of the challenges along the way. We finish our conversation talking about being a dentist of the stars. It's truly a topic that I have no personal experience in, but I found really fascinating. So dental online trainers, enjoy part two of my conversation with Dr. Dennis Wells. Hello, Dental Online Trainers, Dr. Dennis Hartley, back with you for part two of our conversation with Dr. Dennis Wells. In part one of our conversation, we talked about Dennis's background as a musician and as a, as a young man growing up in Arkansas, and essentially his move on to Tennessee, where he attended University of Tennessee Dental School, and then drifted off to Nashville, Tennessee, and sort of that's where we sort of left off as he started his practice in Nashville. Uh, just a little more background on Dennis. Uh, he's the, I guess you're, I don't know, the inventor. Is that the term for Durathin veneers? You're, you're like, you're certainly involved in the, the concept and the development of Durathin and Microthin veneers. Essentially, Dennis's acclaim is a no prep or prep less veneer technique, minimizing tooth removal, remo- minimizing drilling, and maximizing the health of the tooth, maximizing the enamel that we, that we get to keep for our patients. Uh, he's the founder of the Nashville Center for Aesthetic Dentistry. He is um, essentially dentistry to the country music stars and many of the people in the entertainment industry and probably a lot of others that I'm not familiar with. So, Dennis, uh, thanks for joining us for part two of our conversation. My pleasure, my brother. Glad, glad to be here and uh, talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is uh, very conservative, restorative dentistry. So I'll tell a story. So my study club went down and took your program at your um, at your teaching center at your office, where you did live hands on. So it was presentation and live hands on with patients. And we went down. I'm guessing about six years ago. It was pre COVID, so five six years ago. My study group, and it was a great experience. Number one, um, great presentation stuff. Great information. Uh, the, the stuff's awesome. But number two is doing dentistry on a patient with a live audience. Man, that's tough stuff. Have you developed a uh, thicker skin for that? Like in the beginning, did you get nervous doing live patient stuff? And now it's just sort of becoming more, yeah, yeah, I've done this and not such a big deal. Uh, I, I think that's hard stuff. Tell me about that. I think like any anything, the first time you do it, it's it's got more angst associated with it, and and obviously the more you do it, the more comfortable you become, and so it's been been a progression there for sure. But by the time we were doing these courses, we had already been deeply invested into prepless dentistry for several years and felt real confident about how we were doing it at the time and, and sort of what we had landed on as our as our prototype and technique guide and so forth. So. Uh, it's pretty much been a pleasant journey for us to, to start trying to teach that. On the other hand, um, what we now are in the midst of is, in fact, next year, 2023, it will have been 20 years since we first started doing prepless dentistry, which I can't believe it's been that long. Wow. 
And then we've been teaching it a little over 10 years. In fact, probably more like, I'd have to, I need to go back and look when the start date was on our first in-office teaching thing, but it, it, well, let's put it this way, safely 12 years. And so we're now starting to, to completely uh, have data that's almost 20 years old, and we can see some things we look back on and go, we need to do a little differently now. It's almost like you're teaching. It's hard to keep up with what's current. And you don't want to just be throwing out ideas that just come out of the top of your head that you don't have a good bit of experience with. And on the other hand, you don't want to keep teaching the same thing that you, you go, no, there's a better way to do that. And I've got, you know, this body of work to show that. And so uh, the challenge is trying to keep up to date and, and feel like you're always, you know, on the, on the front edge of what you're describing and teaching. When you started developing these concepts of minimally minimally prep prepless veneers, for for dentists who weren't around, it, you know there was sort of a um, a pendulum switch or shift. And early on, we were sort of prepless, minimal prep, and then the preparations got super aggressive. In probably like the I don't know early two thousands, mid two thousands, like two thousand mm-hmm. to two thousand five ten where the preparations was almost embarrassing showing patients the preparations because they were essentially three-quarter crown preparations. We were so stinking aggressive. So what lit your fire? Were you were you then in that camp like I was where I'm like doing super aggressive preparations? This is what I'm being told by my technicians. This is what I need. And looking and saying, man, this is like super aggressive. Or did you never fall into that? Where were you with all that going on? I did go the direction, well, here, here's my journey. I started out, as we've already acknowledged, early, early in, in the whole veneer world. And we hit a groove in the uh, late 80s and early 90s where we were uh, doing felspathic cases and seeing largely great success, not a lot of weird things happening to them, and even on people with, with chewing systems that were hard on, on their teeth and thus hard on the restorations, we saw a reasonable amount of success enter into our world uh, the whole press concepts uh, and of course Ivaclar, a, a super great company, was early on with that and Empress was a really popular product almost from the day it was introduced and it touted you know higher strength and a lot of advantages and better fit and so forth. And easier technique for the lab technicians for sure. Absolutely and, and I think that's when our our industry started getting pressure from laboratory support that almost began, as I describe it, the the tail was wagging the dog in order to make their materials fit that criteria. And we introduced and we saw into our practice suddenly problematic things occurring that we had not experienced in the earlier years, doing it the way we were doing it more conservatively. Problems such as debonding, because we're pretty much bonding completely to dentin, which as we grew in that whole process and learning, we started recognizing some of the limitations and how aging can affect and degrade the dentin bond, for example, and things like that, that we had no clue about. We started realizing that um, flexural strength matters. And when you start reducing too much flexural strength on a tooth, that can be an easy uh, place for adhesion failure to occur as you flex the material that, that you're bonding on. So we, we began to see uh, another phenomenon, which was you had your basic press restoration, but then you had an add-on. Those of us who've been practicing a little while, we, we remember vividly some of those issues. There was a lot of motivation on my part to get out of some of those headache issues and areas that I was in. And it was immediately this, this thought that I need to get back to 
more what we used to do, which was leaving more enamel and staying in enamel bonds. Mark Friedman was another guy, a mentor that had lots of nice articles in the story of dentistry magazines talking about keep the enamel borders and things like that. And all that was, was really ringing true to me during this period of time. And I kind of began to be the guy that was the outsider, it felt like, in the cosmetic world because I was like, I don't want to keep doing this this way. I'm seeing issues and problems. It, look, it can look really nice, and I love this company, but I don't think I agree with this approach, you know, based on my experiences. And so we started looking for other ways to do things. And then we actually had a patient one day that I give credit to in 2003 for actually starting my, my journey of doing absolutely no preparation. And this happened to be a young lady that was a music artist, just got a record deal. And she had pretty nice teeth, but she had a bad habit of sucking on lemons a lot. And so she had some natural erosion on her enamel and things that were not natural. It was created by the lemons, by the acidic environment. We said, we have the solution for you. We'll put some porcelain veneers on your teeth and they'll look great. And, you know, and she goes, well, but you don't have to drill the teeth down, do you? And I said, we, we do. And then, of course, she asked the very fair question, well, why do we have to do that? Because I want my teeth a little bigger. I, I've lost some enamel. We would say today she had a diminishing enamel volume. And so our answer to that dilemma, well, we're going to diminish some more enamel volume with our drill. And that made no sense to her. And I pondered that and I told her, well, that's the only way we know to do it and the only way we could do it because this reason and that reason that we've all been told. I go home that night and I'm bothered by that conversation and I really do want to do something for her teeth. She needed it. And, and I could just only imagine somebody else doing something that, that, you know, we had an opportunity to do. So I had another conversation with her and I said, you know what, I'll talk to my lab and see if there's any chance they could just build us something here that we don't prepare, that we just try to bond right over your teeth. And that's when I called Mark Willis. At the time, he was with Utah Valley Dental, but I had met Mark through Pack Live, a live course program that David Hornbrook led for years in uh, San Francisco, that I was a part-time instructor there. And uh, Mark and I met. I was really impressed with him. And he was a very uh, energetic young man that had lots of talent and was willing to <laughs> probably do anything to try to you know work with us a little bit. And so Kind of naively, he said, yeah, I'll give that a try. And that's that our very first case was this young lady. And it came out really, really above any of our expectations in terms of the way it looked and the way we were able to finish the margins down and, and make it healthy and, you know, compatible with her tissue health and all that. And so, man, that was all it took for me to go, you know what, um, this is another possibility for us to think about when people have almost have prepped the teeth for us. That was kind of what was in my head. And later, which I began to, to include teeth that are just not prepped, but they were born small. And we, our, our goal is to augment them. So that's kind of how this all kicked out in 2003. And then uh, slowly but surely, we began to totally embrace the fact that a lot of people can be served well without reduction of enamel. We've always had to fight off the naysayers and the people who, what I call the elite of our industry, the people that are so good and talented and so capable and have immaculate systems of preparation and everything. And they produce these incredibly great results with what we call minimal preparation. And yet we felt like that there's still a place for the patients of the world who don't necessarily seek the most elite of elite end results that even dentists can't tell their restorations, but they seek something that's close to that that we can do and not put them through these irreversible processes as they view it. 
all of that was a, a transition and, and journey of time of, of trying to, to determine what the limits will be optically of some of this and what the limits would be in terms of aging and longevity. And then also, is there a place where this is absolutely the right thing to do? And all of that, as we look back with hindsight, proved to be, we, we were onto something that to this day we still feel strongly. It's a tool that, that any restorative person should keep in their toolbox. The results you can get with it can rival traditional dentistry, in our opinion, if the right cases are chosen and the right techniques and the right approach are used. And then we've also learned, and with humility, we've learned there are limits. There are times where that's absolutely not the right thing to do. And we've stretched those boundaries. We've made mistakes. We've done cases that I've had to, that either I want to do over or we have done them over and gone back and done some reduction. We found, for at least in our, in our world and in our practice, where those boundaries should be. And that's, that's the teaching part, you know, a big part of trying to teach this is not so much the technique. We all pretty much know how to bond on veneers, whether they're prepped or not. The teaching comes in having the ability to understand what your patient is seeking, to gain that knowledge from them and to communicate well, and then to be able to deliver that to their expectations. What are the cases, as you look back on, you say, these are cases that are not appropriate for uh, a no-prep technique like what are some of the the landmarks that we're that we should be thinking about one has to be really cautious about when people from an orthodontic perspective and maybe a cephalometric perspective their teeth are already what orthodontists refer to as full uh, meaning that that they're anteriorly in the right place or even beyond the right place a little bit in terms of torque or in terms of labial presence and then anytime you're talking about adding more teeth surface without reduction, then you're going the wrong direction. So you, you, we've pushed the limit on some people that were really eager to get improvement without reduction. And we've kind of gone against our better judgment sometimes. But part of our teaching in our courses is, is, to, is to learn where those, you know, where those limits are, how to identify those limits, uh, either with cephalometric kind of analysis or, uh, again, with prototypes that you do test drives with to see if you can stay in the expectation levels of your patient and stay in your own standards as a dentist that you know you don't want to violate. So those are things you, you, you learn it with experience, you know, where your boundaries are going to be. And, and, of course, some people have lower expectations than others. And so you got to know your audience and who you're treating and, and so a lot of X factors there as well. Yeah, for sure. So when you talk about prototypes, are you thinking, are you using bonded prototypes where they actually take them and they use them for function? Or are you talking more like a smile preview or a trial smile where you'll do like a bisacryl from a, from a, a wax up and then have them take a look at that during, uh, you know, during an appointment? It's like a single, like something that's non-functional, but aesthetically like, hey, this is what it would look like or something where it's bonded on and say, hey, let's see how this works in, in the, uh, you know, for the environment. The answer to that is kind of long. So I'm going to try to make it very short. The, we have a bias, as you know, Dennis, being in our course that um, we like to do hand sculpted permanent composite bonding materials and determine directly on them in the mouth and on the teeth what our limits are and, and are we in the zone where we can add, you know, in the range of three to five tenths of a millimeter and be appropriately in the right place facially and, and can contour appropriately and so forth. Yeah, I say it's a long answer because um, there, there are certainly some cases that the teeth are so undersized 
And there is no question that even wax-ups and, and we'll call it a little bit more crude and less accurate types of indirect uh, onlays and things that you can, overlays that you can put on the teeth can be very adequate for people to determine they like it and be adequate for the dentist to, to assure himself that he can do this and not just assume. But the cases that are, are more precision demanding and the patient's expectations are a lot higher, many times those type of indirect overlays will run them off. We, in our practice at least, we have found some people get scared when they see things that are just not very finessed. As a result of all those concerns, we like to do direct bonding and either not etch it and use it as, as a trial look or in our cases where it's a go and we're definitely going to accomplish the case and, and finish it, uh, we like to spot etch them on and let them run through, the, the, have the three or four weeks to test drive to, as you're saying, to even check out some degree function and things like that. What's the biggest challenges for doing no prep veneers? Is it the impression? Is it the cementation? Is it all of it? Is it uh, communication with the lab? Where's where? I mean, are those are there others that I haven't brought up? Where, where's the where's the challenges? Well, I'm going to say that uh, I think the whole process can be a little bit more challenging in the way that we choose to approach it. Where again, we're trying to hit high level marks and high level aesthetics and so definitely the the prototype phase of it can be challenging to go through that whole hand bonding process and and hand shaping and contouring and polishing and all of that and then i'm going to say the bonding process is more challenging because the fit the fit and the finish relies on some post cementation you know work and smoothing and finishing and re resurfacing of those marginal zones so that's extra burden that you're assuming from the from the get-go doing it as we do it so there is a learning curve with it, and, and one thing that's for certain, if you're using felspathic powders, as we like to use a lot, uh, they're very, very uh, easy to break and, and to put you in a, in a tight spot in a hurry if you drop one and things like that. So we found there to be more effort involved in doing the prepless approach at a high level. At the same time, you, you quickly, those we've taught for years and everything else, you, you know, the first few are tougher for you, and then you get to a place where you're pretty pretty savvy at getting it done. And, and I think that's the journey for a lot of other dentists besides us. There's several pieces that are tough. And, and now I'm going to add another part that maybe we struggle with more than ever now that we've been bonding for years and we don't we, we got that routine all down. Again, it's back to which cases do we should we prep and which should we uh, try to, to do the prep list. There's a lot of X factors that come into play. For example, are there other existing restorations and damage to the teeth and compromises to the teeth that they begin to kind of take away a lot of your motivation not to touch them to begin with. We have some people that their expectation is they're going to take their, their powered uh, magnifying bathroom mirrors and they don't want to see any transitional zones or, or any start and stop or anything like that. Or, and they don't want to even see a darkening of the, you know, the body of the tooth as you get toward the, they, they want to see what we call surreal kinds of end results. <laughs> can uh, I use that? Surreal. Sure you can. <laughs> Uh, and I'll tell you something, if you're trying to do a lot of cosmetic dentistry and you don't have a place in your, in your soul and your head for the people that want surreal dentistry look, you're, you're, you're going to struggle because there are, there's, there's a segment of people that have that. I just did all white resin veneers on a patient that, uh, you know what, as, uh, Marshall Field, who, uh, if you don't know Marshall Field, he owns stores, uh, around the country is Chicago guy. And he said, give the lady what she wants. And um, you know what? If they understand that they're surreal, which I love that term, 
Um, you know, we tried to explain this is not going to be like nature. And she said, I've had dark teeth my whole life. I hate dark teeth. I want my teeth white. Give me the whitest you got. And say, all right. We have a lot of conversations. Uh, yeah, that, that rings so true. And, and we've had a lot of conversations about adornment of humans. And adornment, you know, for ladies, for example, uh, artificial nails uh, is super popular among people that can afford them. And, and, and there's definitely a surreal appearance to those nails that if, if you get into this a little bit, you start recognizing the, the length, the, the size, the perfection of all that can't be typically achieved with natural nails in the way you can with the with the add-ons. Eyelashes have become very popular now. You know, add-on eyelashes that thicken and, and become surreal. You can see people walk in the room and go, those eyelashes are not hers, you know, those those but it's still considered compelling and adorning. And of course you can go on and on, hair extensions, on on and on and on. And so when it comes to teeth, there's no law in the of the land or law in in dentistry that says you can't have surreal-looking teeth and be very aesthetic. In fact, some would argue it's absolutely hand-in-hand. Hand. You can create higher aesthetics if you're willing to go a little surreal. Uh, we've embraced this in some of the cases we do. We, we just simply have, feel like at the end of the day, we're not violating any rules. We're doing the right thing. We're trying to serve people. That's our ultimate pledge, you know, when you become a doctor. And, and it's not about your agenda. It's about making sure you're serving them well. It's not your place of decision-making to decide what they want and don't want and things like that. It's your, it's your, it's your duty to inform and it's your duty to educate. But at the end of the day, uh, we've, we've had a lot of education given back to us by our society. <laughs> and, and think about all the things that people do for endowment. They punch big holes in their ears. They tattoo all over. They, you know, it's tribal kinds of stuff that goes back thousands of years. And... And, you know, it's not for me necessarily, but, um, or it maybe is, I may have all kinds of things y'all don't know under my clothes here, you know, but uh, <laughs> that's part three of the interview. <laughs> that's part three. We'll get into yeah more of that. But, but in all seriousness, we, we have had to have a lot of paradigm shifts in our head about how we approach. And so conversation becomes so paramount about the, the pros and the cons of prepless veneers, because, you know, I can have what I, again, back to my and it's a flattering comment when I say this, it's not a demeaning, an elite dentist who says, you know what, you can't create the absolute perfection in, in interproximal contouring if you don't prep away some of the tooth. I'm not going to debate that, but I'm going to say what I can do is, is create contours that look very pleasing and are really, in some ways, by some segment of the country, appreciated more than your perfection contours that they might consider flawed or consider gappy or, or things like that. And so we get back to some real struggles to know how to relay this and how to size up your consumer and your patient and then to figure out which matches them in its entirety the best way. And some of that is in my camp to decide, you know, whether I can deal with these old existing restorations or we can deal with, you know, some of the compromises that we're given with. And some of it is in their camp to go, what do I expect when we're done? Do I expect it to be in the surreal category? Or am I one of these that would rather keep my enamel at all costs? And all those things make it much more difficult to do business than it used to be. It used to be real simple for us in our practice. You want veneers or do you not? And if you want them, <laughs> here's how we do it. And now there's this whole plethora of things we feel responsible and charged to do in, our, in the sake of uh, educating and informing 
and then, and of course, obviously to deliver when, whenever we decide what they want. That's great. Yeah, that's that's super super helpful information. I think very very valid points. And this is a struggle I think as anyone gets into doing cosmetic dentistry is separating your ego from the desires of the patients and recognizing that what we may or may not want um, isn't really isn't really the issue. It's about serving the patient, and making sure we're doing great dentistry. Um, and then sometimes it's like. Yeah, this is not what I would choose, but if I can make the margins right, if I can get the, you know, the functional components right, and if I can do the shape, contour, if I can do all the other stuff right and give them something that's, you know, surreal in color and, you know, lack of translucency, lack of chrome in the cervical, if it makes them happy and we're doing our, then we're doing our job and we're serving our, serving our population clients, so... Agree. And one other little uh, example of that would be in today's world, we're doing a lot of lip enhancement out there in the world. Um, a lot of ladies gravitate to that. And as we age, our lip becomes, you know, less, it becomes deficient in many cases. And so it's a very, it's a very understandable and I think a very appropriate thing to do for a lot of women. But some people do exaggerate that and go into surreal zones and suddenly their teeth are not even very visible. They've, they've over the frame has taken over the picture, and so in those cases we've been charged many times with okay we want to augment and make the teeth become more visible, and so our prepless world fits real nicely into that where they otherwise have pretty nice teeth but they just need them to be longer and more visible, and so we're going in and in many cases uh, dare I say this on, on air but but you know 14 millimeter centrals yes yes yeah now. When you see them in, in a party or somewhere and they smile for you, it's, you, know, you don't know that those are long, long teeth. And, and we've also learned things like this. You put a, a 14 or 15 millimeter extension on a tooth, what we call now in our practice enamel extensions. You get into leverage issues that we didn't used to think about. We used to claim in our no prep world, we're doing no harm. These are actually can even be taken off with, especially if you have a, you know, a laser that you, you know how to use well. You, you can help get, you remove them. And even if you don't, you drill them off, you can get back to pretty much where you started with the teeth, pretty much. And I say from practical observation or from normal observation, they look like they are reversible. But what we didn't take into account is that where you put these enamel extensions on and suddenly you've, you've increased your lever force on the end of that tooth dramatically. And then two years Later, they come in and I see recession that I had never seen prior to that. And, and it's on us. We've, we've created, because we didn't demand a night guard and we didn't demand a counseling on, if you have these longer teeth, you have a more proneness to, to more force. And so we gotta, we got to be cognizant of that. We do that now as an example. So, so many things that come along with when you take the human body and you exaggerate it in some way need to be figured into your prior conversations before you get started. And all of these things have been along our journey to where we feel like every two years we need to redo our courses and add a whole bunch of, of new thinking and ideas that, um, that we learn as we, as we go. I want to talk about being a dentist of the stars, but I got a couple clinical questions first. Um, what's the, uh, is there a place for pressed ceramics in, in a no-prep technique? Can you get the margins thin enough in a pressed technique, or, or are we ultimately... Are we ultimately needing to do hand-layered feldspathic uh, veneers or a combination for, for this? What, what's, what's your world today? That's a super hot question, a super you know, common one. And I have my own 
journey and experiences with that that I'll answer from my humble opinion. We, we are years and years into using the felspathic powders and producing margins in the mouth uh, post-cementation that are what we call infinity margins that, man, they're as good as they get, you know, in, in our opinion. You, you can't see them. You can't feel them with the Explorer. The tissue doesn't even know anything's happened because we're, you know, we're stopping just, just short of the tissue line. And we know that works really well. But we do also know the strength of the, of the edges of those teeth, the biting force edges, can be sometimes inefficient in, in terms of, and certainly not, not strong enough to fend off some people's habits and occlusal systems. That led us back when the, the lithium disilicate became so popular. We thought for a little bit there, we've got the magic answer now because we got something that even when you get it thin, it's going to be strong and, and, and you know, it's going to have all the answers. What we didn't expect is how brittle those materials are when they get super thin. When you start trying to knife edge those and finish those down like we had done the felspathic for years, number one, you burn out your typical finishing diamonds and stuff real fast because they're no match for it. And then number two, when you would finish them down, sometimes instead of just knife edging like, like our felspathics, they would chip. Start to chip. You'd get a little chunk here or there, and then you'd be back to a ledge again. And so that was discouraging. Uh, so what we have evolved to in our practice is, and we're big fans of, of some of the new lithium bisilicates. We, we like the amber press material a good bit, uh, just optically. But we have now recognized we have to turn around and put a burden back on either the ceramist or, or us, the dentist, prior to cementation. After they're, they're pressed and they're as thin as they can wax them and press them and make that predictably work, then we have to take rubber wheels and knife edge those margins and not finish them in the mouth. Oh, okay. And what we have found is that when we take lithium disilicate and knife edge it with rubber wheels, cement it in the mouth and basically clean it up as though it was a traditional prep veneer that we have we don't have as as exciting of a, a transition we definitely have a little bump that we can feel right with, mm -hmm. a, with an instrument though it's slight but we mm -hmm. can feel it but we're seeing absolutely no real negatives with that not optically or not uh, health wise or anything like that as long as again you take the time to really knife edge them well and assuming your veneers are intimate with the tooth so that there's not some other reason that they're elevated off of the tooth. So there's two burdens that you have to, and, and it, as we all know, they're not, if you don't nail it, the fit of it, for some reason, there's no torque in that. It's not going to release somewhere like a felspathic might and in, in one little edge of it, you know, chip a little bit and then it'll seat. It's going to stay up. And, and so Generally speaking, we think it's harder to do the cases and get the same level of optical end result with the um, lithium disilicates. On the other hand, we have a segment of society that we think that's the best way to treat them if we're going to do no prep, is to use lithium disilicate with all the things that we consider to be slight disadvantages. That, that's better than them having a nice felspathic case that chips and breaks before it's been on a year. Last clinical question that I want to talk about being the star dentist. Uh, where, where are you with digital design and how much is that influencing what you're, you're doing with your, your veneer stuff now? So you mentioned our, our trademark brands, the Durathin and the, and the Microthin veneers. Both of my ceramics that we kind of developed, the, the whole pathways that we're on, prepless stuff, uh, to this day don't feel like the digital world is quite ready for some of the dye preparation things that we need to have in order to get, um, to get the results of the fit we're looking for. So we're still hanging back in the analog space a good bit. 
in, in terms of digital impressions for we we have we we take digital impressions, but not for our prepless stuff at this point in time. I rely on on those guys a lot for the the truth in in those arenas. I see a lot of it. I see a lot of buzz going on about you know all of this digitally being applied, but we're slow entering into that that world right now. I'm not sure. I'm not sure when I say these things that maybe I don't need to really check up on a lot of what's happening out there. But but according to my two ceramists, that's that's our story at this point. Yeah, no, I, I, I would say for if you're trying to get these infinity margins, trying to do that with a, a digital impression technique, I think is not going to be as accurate as if you're using a PVS. I think I think everyone would agree to that at this point. All right, so I've always been super curious. So you talked a little bit about... Um, I think it's through your contact in the music industry, your, your brother Kent being in the uh, the country music world, um, that got your introduction to um, start treating uh, treating famous people. Were you were you nervous the first time you started like working on on famous people? Were you like like this Absolutely. is this is like a star? I mean, I, I can't imagine quite honestly. Yeah. Are you still, do you still get nervous? Like, you know, I don't know who you're treating, but like, say someone super famous comes in. Are you like, oh, I better not blow this case. Or are you gotten over that? I don't struggle with that at, at this point in time too much at all. Uh, but, but boy, do I remember vividly my first quote celebrity guy. Now, now remember how old I am. And when I was in dental school, the show Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> which probably most of y'all don't even know what that is, but uh, it was a very popular show came on every Friday night and some of my reward in dental school is like I would take Friday and, and stop my studies and stuff in the first year or two and I was really busy and and just you know watch the show and so one of the main actors for that show came into my practice in 1991 I think it was early and man I could barely speak to him he, I, I, he was just bigger in life to me at that time um, and so yes I, I have had my share of uh, anxiety and uh one of the early on stories I love to tell is that Dolly Parton is probably one of the most visible people I treat. And she came early in my career, about 94, right after I'd got my accreditation. And I treated several of her siblings and her brother-in-law and a few people. And I was just praying that she would, you know, maybe come in one day. And, and sure enough, uh, her sister, one of her sisters referred her and she came. And so we decided we were going to do um, porcelain veneers for her at that time. I was talking to my good buddy, Bill Dorfman, who had treated quite a few Hollywood people, and he gave me a list of recommendations. He says, number one, I would have two labs do her case, and that saved me because the lab that we were working with at that time did not deliver. We had some things we didn't like about it, and the other one was perfect. So he said to do that. That was great advice. The other thing he said, which was not good advice, is he said, uh, you know, if I were you, I, I would like cater in some food and stuff and have this nice little little area where she can snack on and stuff like that. And so when she walked in our office, she chuckled because we had a spread of things out there that we spent a lot of money on. And and she goes, oh, I'm just not hungry. I, we just went through the Burger King drive-thru and I'm, I'm full. And I don't know what it was about that, but from that minute on, I relaxed. It was like, <laughs> we're going to be fine, you know. It is interesting how people can make you comfortable or uncomfortable. I still have some that, that definitely I'm more uncomfortable with than others. And, and our list of celebrities has grown from being country music people. I actually treat more pop and rock people than I do country people right now, which is crazy, only because they've all migrated to Nashville so much. And then quite a few actors and actresses now. We see soap opera stars and 
you know, all kinds of people like that. Um, I better not go into naming here, but but definitely uh, it, it, Nashville has, you know, really blossomed in the last 10 or 15 years into a very broad entertainment city. And so that's cool. And, you know, professional athletes and all types of um, people um, have come to our practice. We have broadcasters that I've watched on TV broadcast golf games for years and, and you know, big championships games that are now patients. So um, it's been an interesting journey for me to, to, to kind of grow up and be comfortable around these people. And most of the time, I'm just, I'm just intrigued and, and mesmerized by their success and what they've been able to accomplish and, and how normal and human they are. You know, that, that, that's a growing up journey, don't you think, that, that all of us do. They're just people. Do you find treating celebrities any different than treating, you know, you know quote unquote, normal people? I mean, is there, uh, do they have a different expectation of how they're treated when they come to the office? Do you, they do. Um, do you, there, are their expectations different? They are, and, and, but they won't generally state those to you. You have to be aware that there's a game going on that most people don't know is even being played. But, the, you know, generally speaking, at least the people we see, for example, uh, they don't want to come in and demand a bunch of extra services or extra attention or anything else. They, want, they, wanna, they don't want to per- be perceived as all up into themselves. Uh, but by the same token, they like protection from unnecessary conversations from others and things like that. They like privacy, clearly. So having obscure doors like we have in our practice and stuff was a big part of our strategic planning from way back. So that, uh, And they, they simply like to be assured that you know, whatever goes on there stays there, <laughs> whatever happens. And all of that you kind of have to figure out. And you kind of have to figure out that they're used to demanding schedules and things like that. So many times you have to flex a little harder than you do for an average individual in terms of cancellations and changes and things like that. Um, there's a real challenge that celebrities have that people that are not don't generally face of just trying to have their privacy and be themselves and uh, be treated in a fair way, not have prices elevated on them, think all those kinds of things that they experience a lot when, when they have repairmen come to their homes and things like that. So you have to pick all this up as you go along and, and I think just be as comfortable and yet aware of what they struggle with and how to deal with them. When you started your practice then in Nashville, did you dedicate it just to cosmetic aesthetic dentistry? Did you say, I'm only gonna be doing appearance-related dentistry? Or did you do basic restorative dentistry with an emphasis on appearance-related dentistry and then just gradually be doing more and more? What, what did your practice look like when you first started? Well, it was a very humble, you know, start-from-scratch uh, situation that, that I was doing my own hygiene cleanings and, you know, had a small t- team of one or two ladies, and, and we literally built from, from the ground up. Can, can you pause for one second? I want everyone to hear that. Dennis Wells did his own hygiene cleanings. And this is important for our young listeners, our, our younger dentists, newer dentists. We did that, right? This is part of growing a practice. We did our own hygiene, right? So if you're an associate in a practice and they're saying, hey, I need you to pick up hygiene, if Dennis Wells could do hygiene, <laughs> guess what? Well, and, and make note that this is after I've been out of school four years. <laughs> this is after I'd already you know, stopped practicing and then came back again and started all over and, and, and definitely um, had to do that. And, and along those lines, I will tell you, too, that I had a clear vision of what I wanted, what I dreamed to have, which was a, a practice that was focused on cosmetics only 
and we had a lot of people. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, we had a lot of celebrities in the practice. That was, I would name that and write that down and, and everything else. And then working real hard on the focus to get there, I had to jump through a lot of other hoops. I had to, you know, do anything that would pay the bills, and and I had to take on patients that were clearly druggies. Sometimes I had to go meet them on the weekends, and and it was a it was a crapshoot. You might meet somebody that ended up referring you ten other people because you bailed them out of something, you know, really early, uh, and that they and they said this young man's going to be going to be great, you know, and I'll trust him. And then we had others that you'd show up and they just wanted drugs and stuff like that. But I kept my own emergency beeper and phone and did all of that for some period of time. But but always with the focus of what I was trying to grow toward. And I would state this to my patients. I, I really want to be more and more focused on cosmetics. And then the AECD was kind of that path for me. The minute, the minute I saw that's a group of people who are trying or are doing what I want to do, then from there I just began to soak up any any skill sets and learning and things that would get me there. And then as early as when Dolly started coming in around 1994, we, we were successfully at that place of pretty much just limiting our practice to what we call appearance-related dentistry. And uh, so it happened it fa- happened faster than I thought it would, let's put it that way. But she was a key piece of that. I mean, her endorsement was priceless and it was a great stroke of luck and, and awesome that she's who she is and the kind of person she is and so forth so but that's the part you got to sit back and wait on you do the hard work I've, I've learned and you get luckier you know that that's kind of what happens well the luck is well deserved so this is this has been great dolly parton is my i have a 26 year old daughter about to be 26 this week dolly parton is her her biggest idol and my daughter's also of diminutive stature my daughter's just under five feet and so i think she uh, and she's a very my daughter's a very, very relatable young woman Yep. And so she relates very much to Dolly and she's a big Dolly follower. So she, um, she told me that Dolly actually put out a list of her, her doctors. So others could like, you know, get treatment that she had. And my daughter wondered, Becca wondered, did Dolly put your name out to others and say, Hey, this is the dentist that you need to go see. She was curious about that. You know, I need to hit her up about that. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen I've never seen that um, print, but but I have seen in her one of the books she wrote about herself autobiography. She listed uh, some plastic surgeons. I, that that happened a good while ago. I, that book, and I don't know if I was intentionally left out or what. But I will tell you, <laughs> I will tell you this. Three or four months ago, uh, we shot a, a magazine cover together for one of the local magazines here in Nashville, and. Uh, and man, you know, when she gives you her endorsement, it's it's big. And so I'll be content to know in my heart, at least, <laughs> that she that we've done all our dentistry. And uh, and maybe one day I'll, I'll make the I'll make that list. Tell your daughter, I don't think I'm on it right now, though. All right. Well, maybe it was in that book that she had read. <laughs> so my daughter said um, I had asked her, I said, I need some good Dolly quotes. So I'll, I'll say one and then I'll um, then I want to ask you to, to give a couple plugs. Dolly said, don't get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. What are your thoughts on that? I'm at a stage in, in my in my life where what does that ring true? And um, trying to to keep your yourself in a great, healthy and prosperous and thriving space place in your whole life is, is obviously what you eventually figure out at some place along the way you should be doing and should have been doing your whole life. It's, it's difficult for all of us, I think, in this field of dentistry that we're passionate about to not get out of balance sometimes, to not have other such high goals and, and ambitions that you, you get a little, a little out of balance. But I, I couldn't agree more that making a life and, 
in recognizing how important the connections are, of the people, the patients you treat, your staff. If you get all busy trying to treat your patients and you don't appreciate how, how important your staff is and how I, I was just reminded this morning, in fact, in a staff meeting that we, we have to really keep that in focus. So building that life is certainly uh, what I'm all about these days. And uh, hopefully I'm, I'm better at it today than I was uh, in recent decades where sometimes the focus was so much on just, uh, just other things. It's easy, especially when you love doing what you do. It is sometimes right. hard to keep, keep track of the other priorities in your life. That's, that's right. It's easy to get, get a, little, a little sideways. Dennis, give a little plug for your, uh, for your educational uh, program. Well, I, I have to tell you, um, I don't really have one to give at this point because we, ever since COVID, we, we, of course, were forced to stop for a while there. And then it timed out where my two sons that I alluded to earlier, they're, they're junior and seniors in high school right now. And it just felt like a time. It, it actually kind of ties in very nicely with what the quote you just gave me. We just decided that we had to pull back on a few things. We've tried to pull back on our practice, and we're blessed for, for the years we've spent, uh, you know, working hard, uh, that we have a good demand on what we do. And, and it seems like as hard as we try, it's hard to pull that back. But it was, it was not challenging to say let's pull back some of the educational stuff to traveling and lecturing and the, the courses even in our office back to what I was saying earlier it's not just a, a, a rinse and repeat kind of program we, we always felt like we had to update and do things and prepare quite a bit so we're enjoying a little hiatus right now uh, we, we just built out a new office right right before COVID hit we have a lovely little teaching center there and a lot of things that are just not being used much right now so one day we hope to return back to that. But at the moment, we, we don't have official formal courses. Uh, I'm turning down a good bit of, of opportunities to, to move around and travel and lecture to study clubs and stuff. But one day when my kids are, are in college and aloof from parents anyway a little bit, we, we will likely return back to that. So I'm going to just say stay tuned and, and don't hesitate to reach out to me personally if you have questions or comments or concerns or, or anything I can possibly help you. I'm, I'm a big believer in paying it forward. Uh, a lot of people have helped me get to a place that I'm enjoying a lot right now. And reach out to me. DJ Wells at Comcast.net is my email. DJ Wells at Comcast.net. And uh, that's the best way to, to catch me. I hope this has been meaningful to all the listeners today in some way. It's just my story. Sometimes it feels like it's a little a little too me focused to even, to even enter into all these things, these questions. But um, it is an interesting story, and I, I love stories. I, I love Dennis's story, uh, as I delved into that a little bit earlier, and, uh, and I encourage all of us to, to keep on fighting to be the best possible Dennis we can be. We're blessed to be in this profession. Amen again. I want to finish up with a, another quote from Dolly, and this is uh, uh, it's abbreviated because it's, it's a little bit longer, but she says, I, I have to not harden my heart because I want to stay open to feel things. And she goes on to some of those feelings and she finishes, I'd like to experience whatever the feeling is and whatever, whatever I'm going through. And I bring this up because in our world and in the world around us as so much is going on in today's world and, you know, maybe post-COVID or still COVID, whatever we're at. And as you talked about having our team that is so important to us and our patients that are so, so dear and valuable to us, it's, it's important to be able to feel things. And it's important... I think in a certain part of my career in a, as a dentist, maybe I, I tried to block off those feelings. But it is about making a life, about being around the people that we're around and making these connections and making sure that we're there for the people who need us, our friends, our family, and uh, taking care of ourselves. So, 
Dennis, I, I can't thank you enough. It's, uh, um, I was super excited to hang out and spend time with you today. I'll be honest. I was, I was a little nervous. I was like feeling like I'm talking to a celebrity. Um, and I, and I, and truly you are one of the most humble people that I've um, had experience. Um, I, I would, I would guess it comes off as shyness. I think you, um, you have these very, you know, we would call it Midwestern, but I think it's very Southern that you, you don't want to talk about yourself. And I, I, <laughs> I appreciate you sharing openly sort of your, your background and your history and your story because it is, uh, I think it's really, really interesting. So I'm, I'm grateful that you shared this with us today. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. I'm honored to, to be a part of this. And, uh, and, and kudos to you, by the way. Uh, as a new member of the AARD, uh, I just want I know the, the, the deep investment and in, in work you put into that organization, and I appreciate all that you do for that because talking about a big life, that, that's a group of people that, that understand that the real goal is to create uh, not just great dentistry, but a great life. And uh, kudos for all you do for there. And uh, I look forward to seeing you. If not sooner, I'll see you in Chicago next, next February. Absolutely. Well, hopefully sooner than that. Well, listen, dental online trainers, it's, uh, it's been a gas. Uh, it's been a blast. Um, I cannot thank you all for, thank you enough all for hanging out with us and listening to us today and enjoying our conversation with Dr. Dennis Wells. And until next time, yours for better dentistry. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley. All right, dental online trainers, I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Dennis Wells. I mentioned in our conversation that I had attended his course in Nashville several years ago with my dental study group. It was really eye-opening for me to see his techniques, and it's really influenced me quite a bit when I do porcelain veneers. Now, what I did not mention is that Dennis entertained our study group following the meeting at his home. And in his little follow-up, he actually brought out some moonshine for us to sample. And I have to tell you, that was my first foray into moonshine. And that was pretty doggone tasty. So I hope that you enjoyed hanging out with me and Dennis as much as I enjoyed the moonshine that he shared with me that night. Now listen, don't forget that DOT has so many other great opportunities from our Wine and Unwind. These are our monthly webinars where we engage real-time with our viewers and we answer your questions and we bring in leaders throughout the dental industry to talk about things that matter to all of us in dentistry. We also have our monthly study club sessions. This is what I call our Coffee and Donuts Study Club. We meet one Friday morning a month and we, we look at cases that you're working on and we try to help work through those cases to make it more predictable for you in your dental world. We also talk about managing our team and our leadership responsibilities. So something to, uh, as, a, as a member of DOT, hang out with us. So these are Friday mornings once a month. We also have our blogs and, of course, our endless selection of hands-on pre-recorded technique courses to help you improve the quality of dentistry that you provide to your patients. So check us out at dothandson.com, and thanks for joining us. And as always, yours for better dentistry. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb. Thanks so much for listening to the ShareCast. If you are not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe to our ShareCast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're loving this ShareCast, share it with your colleagues. And please rate it and leave us a review. Also, if you want access to fantastic clinical, managerial, and leadership tips to help you in your practice of dentistry, check us out at dothandson.com or find me on Instagram at HartleyDDS. This episode was created with special help from Claire O'Neill. It was edited by Ashley Dixon Ellison and with original music by Chris Peterson. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb, yours for better dentistry.